Morning, everyone. If you are here today and you did not grab one of these little containers, uh, we're going to be celebrating communion together as a church family. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, we're going to invite you to be part of that with us at the end of the service. But if you didn't grab one of those, if you raise your hand really quick, our ushers are going to come by and make sure that you can get one uh, so you can be part of that together with us. Um, I'm fairly new here to Keystone. We uh, moved here last January, and it's been awesome getting to know all of you. And I love hearing stories about your life and getting to know you a little bit better and inviting you in to hear the stories of our lives and getting to know us better. And I've had some pretty significant conversations with quite a few of you here at Keystone, and I'm wondering if you would be able to pick out some facts about my life from what might be a lie about my life. So we're going to play a quick game together. You guys up for a quick game? Always up for a quick game. Maybe some of you are not sure what's going on. All right, we're going to play a quick game. It's called Two Truths and a Lie. I'm going to give you two true statements, and one of them is a lie. But you need to pick out which out of the three is the lie. All right, here they are. Number one, I've been to all 50 of the United States of America. Fact number two. I once broke my collarbone golfing. Fact number three, I've been to 15 countries outside of the United States. All right, those those are the three facts. One, I've been to all 50 states. Two, I broke my collarbone while golfing. Or three, I've been to 15 countries outside of the United States. How many of you think that number one is the lie? How many of you think that number two is the lie? Wow, very few. That's pretty crazy. (laughs) You might be wondering, how in the world do you break your collarbone golfing? Um, Number three, 15 different countries outside the United States. How many of you think that is the lie? I am actually very surprised you guys all got it correct. I have not been to all 50 of the United States. I'm missing one, and it's Alaska, and one day I will make sure I get there. That's on my bucket list. Um, You'll have to hear the story of how I broke my collarbone golfing another time. Um, One of my favorite things about my life, though, was the opportunity to get to go to a bunch of different countries, 15 of them. And I got to be a part of that culture, get to see the country, sometimes participate in the in the culture, eat their food, talk with the people that are there, explore the place, get to know the similarities and the differences between their culture, background, and nationality, and mine. And that has been incredible. I love the variety that is all around the world. I love the different foods that you can eat, the different ways that they do things, the different things that make them excited, their different personalities. Uh, But one of the things that I love the most about visiting all those different countries is the opportunity that I've had to participate in worship services in those other countries. Uh, I've been to a church in Fiji where the guys wear skirts. They call them Sulus. I still call them skirts, and I had a hard time with that one. I've been to a Spanish-speaking service in Uruguay, Mexico, and East LA. I've been in Chinese-speaking churches in Hong Kong and Taiwan and also downtown Los Angeles. I've been in uh, African-American churches in the inner city of LA. I've been in uh, a Jewish messianic fellowship in South LA. All of these are different places, and they have a bunch of variety in the way that they worship, with style or tone or length. 
All of it is different, but one thing is not different in each of those services, and that's that they all are gathering to worship God through Jesus Christ. And that is an amazing picture. I loved being able to sit there and hear them sing in their own language. I love seeing how they did different things differently than I have done in my, uh, in my life, in my experience. But above all those things, what I got to see was a microcosm, a preview of what it will look like in heaven when we are all gathered together with people from every tribe, language, people, and nation all gathered together to worship God in unity and variety. That's going to be amazing. That's actually the end of the story. We have been talking about the story of life for the past 11 weeks. This marks the 12th week that we're in the series of Genesis. And what we have been discovering is how this whole life began. What is the story of life? And most importantly, how do we fit into that story? We've talked about everything from why the story even exists, that the story is not about us. It's about God and his plan, his desires for creating this world. We talked about how this world was made and why it was made. We discovered things like how things happen with us getting a body and what that means for us and how people were created. We talked about marriage and how that was formed and why it's important and why it's such a great gift we got to see why the world is in the place that it is today. It's full of sin and destruction and disease because of the fall. We got to see judgment. We got to see the beginning of conflict and war through Cain and Abel. We got to see the story of Noah and how his life shows the justice matched with the mercy of God in dealing with sin along with his faithfulness and promises. That sets the foundation for how this life is, what we will ex experience and encounter in this life. But at the end of the story, the story concludes with a unified worship from a diverse group of people, both ethnically and culturally. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. That's the big idea, that the story of God concludes with unified worship from an ethnically and culturally diverse people. That's the big idea for today. And hopefully we will get to that uh, and you'll be able to understand that. But the question is, how do we get there? How do we get to a place where there's nations all over the earth? How do we get to a place where there's people from all over the earth singing and worshiping God? I mean, didn't we just leave off with Noah? Noah and his family, they landed on the mountains of Ararat, and it's just them. It's just Noah, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their wives, and their children. That's it on the face of the earth, just them. So how is it that we have one group of people living in one place, speaking one language to where we are today, where there are nations scattered throughout the earth in thousands of different languages? Well, the answer is going to be found in the passage that we're going to look at today, Genesis chapter 11. And in these short nine verses, we're going to see that man has this grand plan for his life. Mankind had their own plan. And while that plan is ambitious, it's marred, and most importantly, it's rebellious. And what we're going to discover after that is that God has a plan too, and his plan 
is better. And it results in our happiness in the midst of diversity, in unity, and worship. This is what Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 11, reading from verses 1 through 9. Follow along as I read them. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God, we ask that you would show us from your word your beautiful, wonderful plan, that we would see it in such beauty that it will overshadow everything else in this world especially our own ambitions, our own desires for our own greatness. God, may you be the one who gets praised today. Show us from your word, and most importantly, may it impact us in the way that we live. For we ask it in your name. Amen. So the narrator picks up right away with saying, something is happening here. Everyone had one language, and they were all in one place gathered together. And it says that they migrated east. Some of your translations might say east. Um, I think that that may not be the best translation because the Noah's Ark, it landed on the mountains of Ararat. And the place that this is taking place is southeast of that location. It's in between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. It's in southern Mesopotamia, which would someday uh, become known as Babylon and is right now currently Iraq. That's the region that this is. And what is happening is they have moved eastward. They have moved from the east or from the west to the east into this plain. Now, why is that important? Because if you look through the whole book of Genesis, this early part, you see a progression of things happening as they move further and further away from Eden. The Garden of Eden is where God created everything, put man in the garden. When they fell, he put them out east of Eden. And then after Cain uh, killed his brother Abel, he moved east of that location. And as you see, it keeps moving further and further east, which means it's moving further and further away from God's design. It is a fascinating point. And so what we have here is everyone is gathered in one spot and we're wondering what is humanity up to now? What you see is that it's the ugly foundation that is in the heart of all of mankind that we tend to think we know what is best. The plan of man is saying that I think my way is best. And this shows up in quite a few different ways. First, my way is what is most important, where self-determination is most 
important in my life, my way. The events that are taking place in this passage are probably between 100 and 340 years away from when the ark landed in the mountains from the flood. So you have on the low end around 1,000 people that are alive on the face of the earth on the low end, and then on the high end, probably around tens of thousands of people that are here. They're all gathered together in one spot on the plain of Shinar. What's interesting in this is that at the very beginning of time, when God created man and woman, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill it. Spread throughout the entire earth. Take my name and my glory to all the corners of the earth. And man fell and they disobeyed and they didn't do that. Now, we have Noah and the great flood. God has wiped out all of humanity. All that's left is Noah and his family. And right after they get out of the ark, God shows up on the scene again, and he says the same thing. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And yet here we have in this story, the very first thing that happens is that the people gather together in one place one location on the earth. And they say, here is where we will gather and we will build a city and we will build a tower. And what is the reasoning for that? So that we can make a name for ourselves. What they were doing is they were completely and overtly defying God's plan. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They say, nope. I think what is best is for us to stay, unite, gather, and achieve greatness on our own. This is a far cry from what God's design was. And what they're doing is trying to seek unity in themselves and the salvation of being together, being one people with one language. They're defying God's plan. You know, this has been the pattern of mankind throughout history. That's what Adam and Eve did. God says to Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the trees are open for you to, to eat from, except for that one. Says that to Eve. Eve thinks, well, I think that fruit looks good. I want to know good and evil. I want to be like God. I think my way is best. So she eats it. I don't know if I have to really <laughs> explain this to you. I don't know if I have to convince you that this is the pattern of life. If any of you have children or were a child at any point of your life, you know that this is exactly what happens, right? In a kid's mind, my way is the best way. My mom would tell me all the time that she would think that I was crazy because everything that she would say, I would say the exact opposite. If she said, the sky is blue today, I would say the sky is green. If she says, you need to sit down, I would say, well, I'm going to stand up. Everything that she was telling me to do, I was thinking, I'm going to do the opposite. I always had my own way. And as I look at my own kids, God is rewarding me for my great childhood. Because sometimes the same thing happens when I think that this is what my children should do. And I tell them, this is for your own good. This is for your benefit. And they say, nope, I'm still going to jump off the couch. That is a dangerous thing. I used to jump off the toilet 
into the bathtub, thought it was a diving board. This last week, I discovered my daughter jumping from the side of the bathtub into the bathtub, just like I did when I was a kid. It was a wonderful scene, and I had to catch myself from getting upset, knowing that I did the same exact thing when I was her age. Here's the thing. We all have our own idea of what is right. We all have an idea of what is the best way for ourselves. And that's what's taking place here. We think, I don't need God. I can do this by myself. I know it's better for me. We see this all the time in today's day and age, too. Because God will say something, and we will think that what God's plan is, is not good for us. For example, if God says, don't give up meeting together like some people are in the habit of doing. Some people will say, well, I hear God saying we should go to church, but I don't think that being in church is important. I can be a Christian all by myself in isolation. Technically, that doesn't change your faith, but what God's plan is for your faith is to be in a community together with people who will support, encourage you, and help you walk closely with Christ. But we will say, I think I can do it my way. If God says some things like, I don't think that it's, it's wise for you, my plan is for you to not live in a relationship, an intimate relationship when you're not married. Or I don't think that sexual activity outside of marriage is my design. It's not. And I don't want you to do it. But people will say constantly, well, I just want to do what feels right to me. And I think that's okay. It doesn't matter what God says. This is what I want to do. Nothing has changed throughout all of humanity. We all feel the same pressure and tension when God says, this is what you should do. We say, well, I think I know what's best. Here in Babel, the same people are doing the same thing. They say, my way is better than God's way. God says, scatter, fill the earth. They say, no, let's stay and be together and make a name for ourselves. You see, the people here and the people throughout all of history, they believe that my way is best, that self-determination is most important. I am the master of my own fate. But it keeps getting progressively worse. Not only do they say it's my way because self-determination is most important, but they'll say it's my ideas that are most important. Self-ingenuity is most needed. See, the plan of the people was to build this high tower. So they say, let's build this city and let's build a tower that goes up high to the heavens. They had this ingenuity to build. Most interpreters, they believe that this tower that they were building is what's called a ziggurat. It's a seven-layered pyramid-type structure uh, that was designed with the top to be where the god would come down and then would have a staircase down to the temple where they would invite the deity to come down. It looks a little bit like this. They have uncovered many relics like this in Mesopotamia where this was taking place. Uh, it gives us an idea that this is probably what the Tower of Babel is going to look like. This is ingenious for the people that were alive at that time, for them to come up with the engineering to build something like this was incredible. Not just that, but the passage goes on to specifically state some important details, saying they chose to make their stones, their bricks, from kiln-dried bricks. They built this from kiln-dried 
bricks, which means they weren't just taking these bricks and laying them out in the sun like was usually done. They weren't taking stones from the area to build the structure like was found in many of the structures that are there in this time period. They weren't using mortar, which you find in other structures like this. They use kiln-dried bricks, and they use bitumen, which is like a tar that oozed out of the ground, and it was like asphalt that they would uh, spread over the bricks and build this tower. Their idea was, we are going to build this thing so big and so tall and so strong that it will be impenetrable. It will be a mark of our greatness that nothing will come between us. They wanted to vaunt themselves up to say, my ideas are incredible. And they were for that time period. I want you to see something really quick, though. This is not a knock on technology. A lot of commentators may say that this is showing that technology is not that great, that technologies come and sometimes replace a dependence on God, which it can We should take advantage of advancements in technology like with cars and computers and communication and medicine. But what we should be on guard for is exactly what happened here in Babel. And that's that they looked at their ingenuity as most important, most needed, and it left no room for God. It was replacing a dependence on God. Vance Havner, he was a a brilliant theologian, pastor, speaker, author. He once said this, of all the illusions and fantasies and farces of human history, the biggest mirage of all is what we call progress. Just because we split the atom and are back from the moon, we've given God his walking papers. We've decided we can work out our own salvation and that science has the answer to sin. The people of Babel, they were evidencing the rebellion against God with this. They were refusing to spread throughout the earth like God had commanded. But more than that, they were establishing a sense of autonomy against him to say, I don't need you, God. I don't need you in my life. I can do this all on my own. You know, the same thing can be true of us today where we feel that we don't necessarily have a place for God. There's great fear in a lot of the world. And as a result, people will try to build up defenses to manage that fear. Well, they'll build up maybe missile shields or develop weapons of mass destruction. Or they'll put their confidence in towers, maybe not the Tower of Babel, but maybe the Tower of the United Nations or maybe trade towers of sorts where they'll put their confidence in other signs of ingenuity, things that give them the ability to be secure outside of God. Our self-ingenuity can sometimes come in and challenge our dependence on God and lead us away from him, thinking that our way is the best way. What it does is it leads to a sense of greatness for ourselves. The whole point of the people of Babel coming together to build the city and this tower, it says, was to build the name for themselves. Come, let's gather together, build the city, build this tower so that we won't be scattered throughout the earth and we will build a name for ourselves. That's what mankind wishes to do throughout all of history, to maximize their great achievements. They want to make a name for themselves. Maybe you have heard this before. They, they lust for fame and for power, for renown, for independence. 
You see, you see the same thing throughout all of history. You hear Shaquille O'Neal, the big basketball player who said, I am the greatest basketball player to ever play. Now that's debatable in a bunch of different ways. But he would say that, I'm the greatest basketball player who has ever played the game. Or maybe, maybe others would say that uh, Leonardo da Vinci is the greatest artist of all time. Or maybe they would say that Charles Dickens or Jane Austen or Franz Kafka are the greatest writers of all time. Or maybe you would agree with many that say the Beatles were the greatest musicians of all time. You know that once uh, they were interviewed, John Lennon was interviewed with Maureen Cleves on the London Evening Standard back in 1966. And in that interview, he stated this, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right. It will be proved right. We are more popular than Jesus Christ right now. John Lennon would say that. This is what happens throughout all of history, that people want to achieve greatness. They want their name recognized. They want to build a legacy. They want to be known for something. That is what happened here, and it continues throughout all of history. But as Gordon Wenham states, he's a commentator, it's God alone who makes a name for himself. Everyone else tries to make their own name, saying, I'm great. Look at what I've done. It is God alone who says, I can choose my name to be great. Jeremiah 32 verse 20 says, you performed miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Things still remember to this day, and you have continued to do great miracles in Israel and all around the world. You have made your name famous to this day. You have made your name famous to this day. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus has the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is God alone who makes a name for himself. But in his graciousness, he's the one who provides names for other people. As we'll see in just a few minutes in Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abram and gives his name greatness. I will make you a great nation. It is to David later on that he says, I will make your name great. And later on, he says to the people that follow Jesus in Revelation that God or that Jesus in particular will give us a special name to those of us who have followed him. It is God who makes the name great. In our mentality, we want the greatness. This is what produced such folly in the eyes and the lives of the people of Babel. They thought that they were making themselves great, but they were desiring to displace this God in heaven. They were desiring to make their name the most important. What is interesting is that God says this is not going to happen. God comes upon the scene and changes everything. Man does all that they can. They gather one place. They start to build the city. They build the tower. They say, let's make a name for themselves. God says, okay, we are going to come and we're going to unwind 
all of that. In fact, he does this in ironic fashion. It's interesting. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 11. When God comes down, starting at verse uh, 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I think that's pretty incredible. It's flying in the face of what people thought of Babel. They thought that this, this tower, they called it the gate of God. Babel means the gate of God. But the other uh, meaning of that word is folly and confusion. So God says, okay, you think that this is the gate of God? It's actually not. It's the symbol of folly and confusion. They thought that they were going to build this mighty great tower up to the heavens. And God says, well, hey, let's go down to see the tower as if he couldn't even see it from where he was in heaven. The folly is great. The legend says that the gods built the city of Babylon. And God says, come, let's go see this city and this tower that mere men, the children of men, mortals, earthlings built. God says, let's go and take care of this. This became the symbol, the ultimate symbol of man's failure to go his own way and to defy the creator. God says a remarkable thing in verse 6. It says, look, they are one people and they have all one language and this is the only beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. The Lord, can, he, he gives us two concerns. One, he says that the people are one, that they have one language. They're all in agreement, in unity, in defiance against God. And the second concern is that the, this is the only beginning of what they will do in rebellion against him. If the people are successful in defying God now, who knows what they will propose next? If the whole human race remain united in the proud attempt to take its destiny into its own hands and by its man-centered efforts to seize the reins of history, there would be no limit to its unrestrained rebellion against God. The kingdom of man would exclude the kingdom of God. So for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of all humanity, God comes down and he enters this and he shows my plan is better. God's plan is better because his plan will truly make you happy. And his plan is to scatter, divide, or diversify in worship. Contrary to what we think or feel, God loves us and he wants the best for us. And he has his plan for the story that we are in. And his story is the best. So here's where God comes in and he starts to make the story incredible. One, he makes his plan possible And it's prophesied in the call of Abram. His plan, his better plan is made possible by the scattering of nations first. So God's purpose in this was preventative. He's saying, okay, we got to do something. Everyone's gathered together. They're, They're defying me. They're stuck in rebellion against me. So let's go down and change this. It's preventative. He's saying they're going to get way beyond what they should. You might be wondering, well, what would that look like? Well, think about it. One of the greatest scourges that we have in the world today is human trafficking. Men, women, and children are taken and they're abused, tortured, and exploited by other people for financial gain. They all have their own networks and chains that they use to function to do all of this. But what would happen if 
in some way, every communication piece was gone. There's no more internet, no more mail, no more phones, no more translators, no way to communicate with each other in that supply line. Well, then that would go away or at least it would be severely diminished because you can't function without that supply line. What God is saying is this evil will continue unless we do something about it. So he's preventing it from getting worse, but it has a redemptive element as well. That God halts this for redemption purposes. As these intelligent people that were there on the plain of Shinar, as they started to disperse and go throughout the world, the movement of ideas was slowed and the ability to perpetuate this godlessness and evil was limited. And God gives us another clue as to what he's up to in this. I love what uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 17. Sorry, Paul says in Acts 17. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. This is so beautiful. So here in this, in this scene, this is where we get all the nations. This is where the languages come from, the different languages on the face of the earth. This is where it comes from. God comes down, confuses them. He's not going to destroy the world anymore. Said he confuses their language. They can't interact. They can't communicate with each other. And because of that, they start to disperse. And as they disperse, they start to go into other areas of the world and they start to develop cultures and technologies and languages and personalities and cultures all throughout the world. And what God is saying is, I'm scattering you out to build all this diversity for the purpose of one day bringing us all together again in worship of me. God has this beautiful plan of getting a diverse worship from people throughout the entire world. It's funny because in the Bible, you'll see uh, a sign that often when God scatters people, it's a sign of his punishment. And you see unity coming as a sign of God's pleasure. But in this sense, he's saying, I want there to be, I want there to be a dispersion. I want there to be a scattering. I want each person to be responsible for parts of my creation, to build them up and to be fruitful in those regions. And I want them all to come together, caring for each other's needs and unifying in worship of me. God has a plan in the scattering of nations where everyone will come and join in unity of worship with God. God's plan is now going to be uh, set in motion. You see that in the next part. First, it was made possible because the nations were scattered. But second, it was prophesied in the call of Abram. The next passage, chapter 12, we read about God choosing one man to bless the entire world. Here's what's really cool. After the flood, there is the symbol of hope that God is not going to destroy the world again with the rainbow. But Babel, there's nothing after that. There's no symbol of hope. There's nothing that's there. But what it shows is that if there is going to be any hope for mankind at all, they have to leave Babel where the defiance and rebellion against God was so great and move away. So what you see in chapter 12 is God saying, to Abram, I want you to get up, Abram. I don't want you to go leave your gods, leave your family, leave your home and go to the place that I'm calling you to. And there I'm gonna make of you a great nation 
And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is setting the stage because one day there's going to be a descendant of Abram that will be the one who was chosen from the very beginning, the seed of the woman who is going to come and redeem mankind, bring them back into relationship with God. That one person. Do you see the the transition? We have one nation, one people, one language. They are scattered throughout all, all the earth. They build all these different nations. God takes one nation out of all the different nations, and then he chooses one person from that nation. And out of that one person in that nation comes one redeemer, One man who will come and make all the darkness light and all the wrong things right. It is Jesus. And that one person who does that will then draw back together all the nations of the earth. That is what's being prophesied in chapter 12. This incredible moment when God brings people back into fellowship with him. And then if you fast forward in history just a a little bit longer, we find after Jesus has risen and he's ascended back into heaven, all the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to the disciples. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, they start up and they start to speak in the presence of people that were gathered there in Jerusalem. And it says that every person there heard the gospel in their own language. And in that passage, if you read it, in fact, I have it up there on the, on the screen. Do I have it up there on the screen? They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each heard them speaking in the native language of each about God's deeds and power. Man, can you imagine what that would have been like? To be there, you have all the nations from the earth, people from there, from all these nations gathered together in one spot at one time, all of a sudden they hear the disciples start to speak the gospel in their own language. And then we see 3,000 people believe. And they stay in the city for a while, staying together in community. It's a preview. It's like you go to the movie theaters and you sit for 30 minutes to watch what's coming next. This is what's coming next. They're sitting there seeing a picture of what's coming next. And what's coming next is what is perfected in eternity. God's plan is perfected in eternity. John, who walked with Jesus, he was a disciple that Jesus loved, is in the island of Patmos and he is being exiled and he gets his vision of what it would be like in heaven at the end of time. And this is what he says in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then verse 22, then I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it. 
For the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is a lamb. And listen to this. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And what will they be doing when they're there? Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the scene. This is where everything in history is moving to. This is the conclusion of it all that God wanted to gather together from all the nations of the earth, all the different people, tribes, tongues, and nations, a group of people who would worship him in unity. But that's not what we see today, is it? What we see today is different. What we see today is a world that is full of wars and fighting. Ethnicities fight each other in their own countries and states and cities and neighborhoods. There's genocide seeming in every generation. There is conflict on every corner. And we might wonder, hold on, God, I see that this is what the end is. The end is this, that you want the story to conclude with worship from an ethnically and culturally diverse people. But yet in this, I don't see it. So what is it that could gather together all these people from every different background, different language, different location, personality, style, hang-ups? What can gather them all together? Jesus. Jesus can. It says in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself.